Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Dr. Paul Dorian, world-famous cardiologist and electrophysiologist, prominent researcher in AFib and cardiac arrest, who you might remember from our main episode podcast with him and Alma Matu on tachydysrhythmias. He's going to give us his take on the controversial topic of immediate electrical or chemical cardioversion of AFib versus rate control in the ED with delayed cardioversion within a couple of days. He has a very different point of view than Ian Steele, who is big on immediate cardioversion, which Dr. Steele explained in EM Quick Hits number seven. It's probably best to listen to both of these brilliant docs and then make up your mind on what you think is best for your patient. We're going to talk about the risks and the benefits uh, and how to think about chemical and electrical cardioversion for acute atrial fibrillation in the emergency setting. This is a pretty controversial subject, since there are many practitioners who feel strongly that the most effective, most prompt therapy, and therefore the most useful therapy of acute symptomatic atrial fibrillation is electrical cardioversion. Other practitioners feel that since atrial fibrillation often spontaneously converts to sinus rhythm within hours of its onset, it is safe and reasonable to delay electrical cardioversion and wait for spontaneous conversion in case it is going to appear or happen. Let me lay out quickly the arguments in favor and against electrical cardioversion so listeners can make up their own minds what is preferred for them. The arguments generally advanced for urgent or rapid electrical cardioversion is based on the observation that most patients who come to the emergency room with atrial fibrillation are quite symptomatic. Worth noting that the minority of them have acute myocardial infarction or shock or other hemodynamic instability, which mandates early cardioversion, and we won't talk about those patients going forward. So we're largely talking about stable patients who have severe or at least moderate symptoms, usually with a rapid ventricular rate, let's say 140 to 160 beats per minute. And they're coming to hospital because of atrial fibrillation rather than as a complication of another illness. The benefits of electrical cardioversion are that it can be delivered quite safely in experienced hands. It is almost invariably effective, and it can help get the patients home relatively promptly and quickly and resolve their symptoms quickly. That's the perceived benefit. It is entirely unclear if the risk of stroke is reduced by shortening the episode of atrial fibrillation to less than what it otherwise might be. So those are the benefits of electrical cardioversion, and it's strongly advocated by many emergency room physicians, including some highly expert physicians. The challenges with electrical cardioversion are two separate concepts. One is that electrical cardioversion requires expertise and money and time, and it requires multiple pairs of hands. It requires nursing, expert nursing help, and usually an RT or some other individual who helps you control the airway and make sure that there are no respiratory complications following cardioversions. Those things all make electrical cardioversion somewhat challenging, particularly in a very busy emergency room where there might be other patients whose care is potentially delayed because the time and attention is paid to the individuals getting the cardioversion and not all the other people in the emergency room. This depends, of course, on how busy the eMERGE is and the nature of the eMERGE. 
but it is potentially a problem. There is a belief, but not clear, that electrical cardioversion is more likely to lead to subsequent spontaneous thrombus formation in the atrium than spontaneous cardioversion. This is based on the incomplete evidence that suggests that electrical cardioversion leads to mechanical atrial stunning, which can promote clot formation in the atrium. This is, of course, potentially balanced against the potential risk of clot formation if atrial fibrillation is ongoing for, for example, 48 hours or longer. It's very hard to weigh these various risks against each other. A completely separate challenge with electrical cardioversion, which I believe is important, is the fact that when a patient has had an electrical cardioversion, they then believe that electrical cardioversion will be necessary for any subsequent episodes of atrial fibrillation. It is my strongly held opinion that atrial fibrillation in most patients, most of the time, is not a life-threatening or emergent problem and does not, in fact, require an emergency room visit. Important exceptions, of course, are patients with unstable angina or myocardial infarction or heart failure or shock. But I think we can instruct our patients when it is advisable for them to go, go to hospital and when it may be less advisable. So the consequence of the early cardioversion, and here I'm lumping together chemical and electrical for the sake of brevity, the consequence of an early cardioversion approach implicitly and explicitly, is that it seems to suggest that patients, when they go into AFib, should go to hospital as quickly as possible. Then they should get the paddles as patients perceive it. The paddles in most patients' minds implies that this is a dangerous, nay, life-threatening problem based on what they've seen on television and on the internet. And this then implicitly or explicitly encourages them to come back to the eMERGE next time they have AFib, again asking for cardioversion. And this then results in a revolving door of repeated eMERGE visits and repeated cardioversions for what would otherwise be spontaneously terminating atrial fibrillation. We have some evidence that this manana approach, we'll call it, is correct from a study by plumemakers and colleagues in the March 2019 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, where patients with Otherwise, uncomplicated atrial fibrillation were randomized to either the immediate electrical or chemical plus electrical, if necessary, cardioversion strategy versus a wait-and-see strategy, so-called delayed cardioversion. The delayed cardioversion strategy relied on acute rate control with a beta blocker or a calcium blocker, sending the patients home and having them come back up to 36 hours later. And in the event, it was observed, as would be expected, that almost 70% of patients randomized to the delayed strategy, in fact, had spontaneous cardioversion and therefore did not require chemical or electrical cardioversion the next day. It was only required in about 30% of patients. So this delayed strategy, or the manana strategy, will result in avoiding cardioversion 70% of the time. That's, I believe, a beneficial thing. But more importantly, perhaps, or as importantly, it will help encourage patients and doctors to understand that if a patient has AFib and they take a beta blocker, unless beta blockers are contraindicated, then the heart rate will slow down, they are not going to be in danger, and they can safely wait at home for at least 24 hours and most of the time, the atrial fibrillation will stop on its own. And then the follow-up, which is necessary, can be as an outpatient with an internist or a cardiologist or an AFib clinic or whatever they desire. And that will then reduce the burden on hospitals 
in Ontario, we're talking about roughly 20 to 22,000 visits per year for atrial fibrillation as the primary diagnosis. This could reduce the burden in the hospitals of by 50 or even more percent. Of course, the approach to atrial fibrillation should be individualized. But when I look at a patient with atrial fibrillation that's symptomatic, I ask them to consider the following strategy. Particularly for patients that have infrequent episodes of AFib, let's say less than once per month, I ask them to take a single oral tablet of metoprolol, usually 50 milligrams, which I then ask them to take every 12 hours for two or three doses, waiting for the atrial fibrillation to terminate spontaneously. The exception to this, where I do advise them to go to hospital, is if they have symptoms of severe hypotension or heart failure or myocardial ischemia. This is the minority of patients. And what we find through experience is that the majority of patients with this strategy will see that their AFib will stop on its own within 12 to 24, maximum 36 hours. If the AFib has not stopped on its own, then I do tell them to come to a hospital, largely for the comfort of having it treated definitively with either chemical or electrical cardioversion, based on the well-founded, if empirical, observation that if an episode of AFib does not stop by itself within 24 to 36 hours, it is somewhat unlikely that it will stop on by itself later. AFib usually spontaneously self-terminates within 6 to 24 hours if it is destined to spontaneously self-terminate, and that's the majority of patients. And by this strategy, I can get patients, number one, to calm down and not fear that they're going to die or have a heart attack if they develop AFib, and I will get them to avoid what I believe to be an unnecessary emergency room visit. I hope to have Dr. Dorian back on the show when his big epinephrine dosing and cardiac arrest paper gets published. Okay, next up, we've got a topic I know almost nothing about including the embarrassing fact that I don't know where in the world this problem actually occurs, as you'll soon hear. Justin Morgenstern is going to interview Justin Hensley for this quick hit on snake bites. So Anton sent me a request. Actually, it was a listener request. Somebody wants us to talk about snakes. And Anton thought, you know, maybe I should cover this, seeing as I just moved to New Zealand. Unfortunately, Anton committed one of those cardinal sins. He confused New Zealand and Australia. That's like confusing Canada and the United States. You just don't do it. So now I have a big problem. I'm a Canadian living in New Zealand. Neither of those countries has dangerous snakes. I've never seen a snake bite. So I got us an upgrade. Justin 2.0, a wilderness expert, also known as EBM Gone Wild. Dr. Justin Hensley, welcome to the podcast, mate. Hey, thanks for inviting me. So let's say, you know, I'm hiking with a group of friends, maybe in one of the beautiful national parks somewhere in your state. And one of my friends, you know, let's call him an acquaintance because he's, you know, he likes to think he's a real badass. Like he's watched every episode of Bear Grylls and we come across a snake. And of course, he thinks this would make an awesome Instagram photo. And so five minutes later, everybody's looking to me for some advice on how to manage his snake bite. Like I said, we don't have snakes in Canada, so I have no clue what to do. I know in the movies, they always try to suck the venom out or maybe they use a tourniquet. Justin, what am I supposed to do here? All right. Well, first, there are two venomous snake species in Canada. Out west, you have the prairie rattlesnake, so southern BC, Alberta, and out east, you have the Massasauga in Ontario. That being said, they're essentially the same as all other North American snakes in that they're crotalids. 
in the wild, the first thing you want to do is move away from the snake. Don't try to catch it. Don't try to hold it down so you can get a cell phone picture of it. Just get away from the snake. After you're far enough away, you can then decide if you were actually bitten, and if so, what to do next. Second, for North American snakes, and so the vast majority of them are crotalids, they are necrotoxic. You are not going to die in the next 30 minutes. You're not going to die in the next 30 seconds, except for the very rare cases of anaphylaxis or angioedema. So you want to calmly get out of the woods and get to definitive care. Call 911 or whatever you're using in your locality. Get in the car and drive if you need to. But there's also some other first aid that can be done. You definitely do not want to use a tourniquet, cut and suck, use a commercially available suction device, use electric therapy. There are people out there that recommend using stun guns on bites. And don't put ice on it. None of these things are beneficial, and they're actually more harmful to the local tissues than nothing. After that, you can consider, if you've got the resources and availability, to immobilize the limb as best as can. So if it's the arm, put it in a sling. You want to try and get that limb in a neutral position at the level or above the heart because it's going to swell and it's going to cause problems. And so the higher you get it, the less it'll swell. Also, and I should have mentioned this first, take off any constricting item on the affected limb and possibly other places. You can leave their belt on, but take off their socks, take off their boot, take off a watch if it's their hand, take off any rings on that finger because that hand or that foot is going to swell. And that's pretty much it for wilderness first aid. You don't want to do anything bizarre out there. You don't want to be inventing new things. Literally, it's car keys or cell phone are your best options in the wild. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I can handle that. So back away from the snake and then don't panic and just get yourself to some some healthcare and remember that things are going to swell a whole bunch. And so either elevate, remove those tight rings and, and watches and don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything that you've ever seen in a movie. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. So we get this guy packed up and we transport him to a local ED. Run me through the first steps here. What, what do I need to know as an ED doc on you know history, physical labs? And do I need to know the type of snake? How important is that? There is not really any need for a native wild snake to know the exact species. Uh, There's only two main syndromes for envenomation of snakes in North America for the native snakes. Uh, The only caveat I have to that is if this is a snake from a collector, then it might not be a native snake. And knowing the identity of that snake is very important. Then we have to assess the patient. We always want to get baseline labs You want to check their INR, you want to check their platelets, so get a CBC, and you want to check their chemistries because sometimes they can develop rhabdomyolysis and it can affect their renal function. If there is any swelling to that extremity, you want to delineate where, how high the swelling goes, the amount of swelling, so tape measure. And when you're doing these tape measure marks, make sure you put a line above and below where you're doing the tape because if you make a measurement with one line, and the next person to make a measurement is on the opposite side of that line, it can really skew those numbers and make it really difficult to determine if there is progression of the disease or not. With pain, you want to run your finger down the affected extremity, and you want to mark where they start to tell you it hurts. So you've measured the limit of their pain. 
you've measured the limit of their tenderness, you've measured the extent of their swelling. Those are things you want to measure every two hours, every hour, depending on how quickly it's progressing. So that's how you assess them. Sometimes people arrive sooner than we're able to see any envenomation syndrome. And for certain snakes, we have to watch those people for up to 24 hours. All right. That sounds pretty simple. Like even I can do that. Basically a very uh, basic history. I'm actually just going to look and feel the limb in front of me and labs just remember to include the coagulation factors. Uh, So I guess we get to the exciting part. What do I actually have to do to treat these patients? When do I treat these patients? So there is a unified treatment algorithm for North American snakes that was put out by the Colorado Poison Center. And it really goes through a very flow chart style algorithm Apparent non-envenomation, which you observe them. Is it a minor envenomation, in which case they may not need antivenom? Or is it a major envenomation? Major envenomation generally is limited to systemic signs or symptoms. So any coagulation abnormality, any nausea or other findings that are not specific to lower extremity swelling. Any angioedema certainly is a reason to treat because that's probably a venom pathology. If you're going to treat... The recommendation is to start with four to six vials of CROFAB, which is crotalin FAB fragment. The four to six vials is the initial dose. And if you think they have an apparent life threat, so again, you're talking about the angioedema pattern or their platelets are down in the single digits or they're they're hemorrhaging from places they shouldn't be hemorrhaging from, you know, respiratory failure, things like that. You actually double that initial dose to eight to 12. You know, it's, it's like a fire. And you need to get source control first. So you're going to dump a whole bunch of antivitamin in to try and get source control. After that, you reassess. And if you have initial control, then you go to the maintenance phase, which is every six hours, you give two to four vials, depending on the degree of the venomation. Or if you don't have initial control, you do another initial control dose. The good news is most people get initial control on the first dose. And if not, then the second dose. It's very rare that you have to do initial control more than two times. Realize for these people, you definitely need to be calling a poison control center for for management if you're giving a second initial control dose, even if you feel pretty comfortable. Highest number of vials I've seen somebody get is north of 80 vials for a six foot or two meter long Western Diamondback rattlesnake. So let me make sure I got all that for you. So basically, I'm looking to see a very sick patient, systemic symptoms, rapidly worsening uh, swelling or those lab numbers being way off, low platelet, coagulation factors off. Any of those things make me worried about the patient. I'm giving a, an upfront dose of antivenom. And after that, I'm probably just getting on the phone with poison control to guide therapy. That sound about right? Absolutely. Okay. I think that gives us a pretty good summary of snake bites. I guess, I guess the one thing is we're really just talking about North American snakes here. We do have listeners from around the world. And actually, I bet you in Toronto, if I see a snake bite, it's a lot more likely to be one of those exotic pets than a snake in the wild. Are there any big differences that we should just highlight uh, quickly for these other snakes from snakes from other places in the world? Sure. So, you know, most North American snakes are going to be crotalins, which is your rattlesnakes or your water moccasins, your copperheads. In other parts of the world, you have a lot more elapidase, which they're neurotoxic. And so your leg doesn't swell. You just stop breathing and die. Things like the brown snakes in Australia actually every snake in Australia, the cobra species in Southeast Asia and in Africa, the mamba species in Africa, all of those can be neurotoxic. And so we actually do different first aid for those. In Australia, they recommend pressure immobilization bandaging, which is more difficult to do than not, but 
the gist of it is you want to get a wide elastic bandage, like an ACE bandage or some other device, and wrap the extremity with compression to limit lymphatic spread. Done correctly, it can keep that venom in that extremity for eight or more hours so that it doesn't get systemic and make them have respiratory collapse, which is the most common cause of death from them. The reason we don't do it for North American snakes is because, remember, ours are not neurotoxic. And so if you keep the venom in that extremity, it just makes that extremity rot. Many of these exotic snakes that people collect are either cobra species or coral snake species that are the elapidae because they're very vibrant colors and very pretty. And they will need a different antivenom. So North America, really, it's mostly local toxic, local problems. And other snakes, I got to be a lot more worried about neurotoxins. So the big difference is in North America, I'm trying to stay calm and just get to the hospital and do nothing. Whereas anywhere else in the world, basically, I'm trying to stop that lymphatic drainage. I'm wrapping the local area of the bite and trying to stop the lymphatic drainage. Any final thoughts before we take off? Yeah, remember, with North American snake bites, don't just do something. Stand there. Most wilderness first aid is more harmful than nothing. Thanks so much, Justins. Very nicely reviewed and summarized. Next up, we've got Britt Long doing a best of EM docs quick hit on the sometimes very challenging diagnosis of ovarian torsion. The female with lower quadrant abdominal pain can be challenging for us in the ED. There are a bunch of conditions we need to think about in females with abdominal pain, and one of these things is ovarian torsion. But what we have been taught about ovarian torsion may be wrong. I'm going to walk through a couple misconceptions we hold regarding ovarian torsion with a case I had a while back. My patient was a 9-year-old female with lower right abdominal pain for a couple days. She said the pain comes and goes, and it became more severe whenever she peed. Her mom was sure this was a UTI, and she just wanted some antibiotics. The pain at its worst was a 7 or 8 out of 10, but it would go back down to a 2 or 3. She denied fevers, but she said she had many episodes of nausea. She had no prior past medical history, including UTIs, and my abdominal exam revealed some slight lower quadrant tenderness, but no peritoneal findings. I ordered a urinalysis, thinking this was going to be fairly straightforward. Finally, her urinalysis came back, and it was normal. Well, time to start thinking through things again and go back to the drawing board. I thought to myself, what could I be missing? This doesn't seem like appendicitis, but could it be ovarian torsion? She's young and has intermittent pain, and this doesn't seem consistent with torsion. Yes, ovarian torsion is rare, affecting around 6 people for every 100,000. The classic population affected by torsion is women of reproductive age. But what we fail to realize is that up to 15% of cases with torsion occur in children. Several studies have found cases can even occur in those before the start of menses, even infancy. What about postmenopausal patients? One study found that up to 25% of cases occurred in postmenopausal patients, and other cohort studies suggest similar findings. Torsion can even occur in pregnancy. Risks for torsion during pregnancy include known ovarian masses, a history of prior torsion, prior pelvic surgery, and fertility treatments. Your first clinical takeaway is that while torsion most commonly affects those of reproductive age, keep it in mind for kids, older patients, and pregnant females with lower abdominal pain. Next, let's look at the duration and severity of pain. The classic presentation is sudden, severe pain with nausea and vomiting. Back to our patient, 
She has had intermittent pain for a couple days, which isn't all that severe. This can't possibly be torsion, right? Only about half of patients experience severe, sudden pain. Pain may be more subacute and comparatively mild, especially in patients with a history of prior cysts or other pelvic problems like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Symptoms can be a wide range from mild to severe pain, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal fullness. Pain may be constant or come and go with changes in activity. There have been multiple cases of patients with pain over days to weeks due to intermittent torsion. Even more of a problem, ovarian torsion can mimic other conditions like appendicitis, kidney stones, ectopic pregnancy, and colitis. While up to 70% of patients have nausea and vomiting, this leaves 30% of patients without these issues. The key takeaway from all this is that not all patients have the classic picture of ovarian torsion and may have more subacute symptoms. Next, our patient does not currently have severe pain and the abdominal exam is not impressive. But when you look at the data behind our exam, up to 30% of patients with surgically confirmed torsion have no abdominal tenderness. The problem with this is that our exam may falsely reassure us, resulting in us missing torsion. There have been a lot of recent data concerning utility of pelvic exam, and I'm not going to do a deep dive. Just keep in mind that over and over again, studies show that emergency physicians and even OB docs do not agree on pelvic or bimanual exam, and our sensitivity is very poor. Your final takeaway is you cannot rely on a normal exam, whether abdominal or bimanual. Just because you don't feel a mass does not mean the patient can't have torsion. And like we talked about, pain on external abdominal exam with palpation can be relatively mild. Back to my patient, I wasn't impressed with her abdominal exam, but I talked over the differential with the mom and the patient. We elected to go forward with ultrasound. The radiologist called me with a diagnosis of ovarian torsion, and I spoke with our GYN docs, who took her to the OR. In summary, keep in mind that ovarian torsion can affect all age ranges. Also, don't rely on the classic history and exam findings to diagnose ovarian torsion. Couldn't have said it better myself. On the next EM Cases Quick Hit episode, Dr. Long will dive into the ultrasound test characteristics for ovarian torsion. And just a warning, it ain't pretty. Next up, we've got Michelle Clayman giving us the lowdown on the rising problem of crystal meth in North America that's been largely ignored because of the opioid epidemic and some of the simple things we can do to help these patients besides snowing them with benzos, antipsychotics, and ketamine in the ED. A 40-something-year-old male is brought in by police and EMS after being found running in and out of traffic after smoking crystal meth. He's agitated, paranoid, yelling, spitting, and thrashing. You can't get vitals except for a quick tympanic temp, which is normal. You do your best to de-escalate him. You dim the lights. You minimize the number of people in the room. You keep your hands visible but not clenched and try to remain calm. You introduce yourself, acknowledge his feelings, and validate his concerns. Despite your best efforts, he is just too agitated. You restrain him and sedate him with I am Adazlam and Haldol. 30 minutes later, he flips the stretcher and you have to use 5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine intramuscularly. You put him on entitle, hand him over to the next doc at the end of your shift, and hopefully his psychosis will clear and it will be an easy discharge. While the crystal meth epidemic has been overshadowed by deaths due to opioids, it is a serious drain on our healthcare system. 
Patients are often brought in by police as well as EMS, are extremely disruptive to staff and other patients. They receive large doses of medications, have long length of stays, and may require admission due to rhabdo and various other complications. These patients are often repeat visitors, and we wonder why we can't help them. This podcast was inspired and informed by a recent abstract presented at the Canadian Society for Addiction Medicine Conference by psychiatry resident Dr. Kara McQuaid. Her data from a single center site in Kingston, Ontario, shows that presentations to the ED have increased by at least 690% in the last 10 years based on urine drug screens alone. This is obviously an underestimation, as most patients do not get urine drug screens. She mentioned that in cities like Winnipeg, the rates are incredibly high, with a 1,700% increase in about the same time frame. Known as Tina, Speed, Ice, and Poor Man's Cocaine, methods cheap, easy to find, and simple to make in a properly ventilated basement. The three main ingredients for cooking meth are pseudofedrin, iodine, and red phosphorus, which is found on match tips. You also need five other ingredients that can be found at your local hardware store. Compared to amphetamine, methamphetamine has an extra methyl group, making it more lipophilic, crossing the blood-brain barrier quite easily. Crystal meth is the highly purified form of the D-stereoisomer of methamphetamine, which forms smokable crystals and has five times more CNS activity than the L-isomer. When smoked, the onset of meth is seconds, but the effects can last up to 12 hours. The dopamine surge contributes to disturbing hallucinations, which are most often auditory or tactile. People who use crystal meth often describe the sensation of bugs crawling under their skin, leading to persistent picking, ulcers, and excoriations. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of evidence for medications to treat crystal meth use disorder. For patients with persistent psychosis, a low-dose antipsychotic like olanzapine can be helpful and will allow these people to participate in treatment. Small studies do show some benefit from medications like modafinil and bupropion, and substitutional or agonist therapy with prescribed stimulants is often seen as controversial. The treatments with the most evidence are psychosocial interventions, such as CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, NMI, or motivational interviewing. We also know contingency management is helpful. This model provides vouchers or cash as a reward for abstinence and participation in treatment. There are also a few online resources you can offer them. Two worth remembering are Hi, My Name is Tina at HiMyNameIsTina.com and the Health Initiative for Men's website at checkhimout.ca forward slash highlife forward slash. So we tend to see these patients again and again, and they take up a lot of our time and energy in the ED. So wouldn't it be great if we could help them get off crystal meth so they don't come back again and again, and maybe even recover long term? Rather than just snowing them and kicking them out of the department 12 hours later, consider prescribing a low dose of olanzapine for those patients who have persistent hallucinations so that they're able to do the therapy that works best for crystal meth use disorder, and that is CBT. Try the motivational interviewing, and if they're ready to quit, refer them to an addictions clinic, and just maybe you'll get them on the road to recovery. You can also offer them online resources that Dr. Clayman mentioned, and we'll have those in the show notes. Other meds to consider, again, are bupropion and modafinil. Now, in terms of the agitated patient, for a deep dive into the management of the agitated patient, 
check out our main episode podcast from a couple of years back, episode 115 with Ruben Strayer and Mark Thompson. That's one of my faves. All right. Next up, we've got our Just the Facts collaboration with CGEM. Hans Rosenberg interviews a fantastic Canadian researcher, Rob Ole, about some clinical facts of aortic dissection. Take it away, Hans. Aortic dissection, it scares every single one of us. It's one of those rare do-not-miss diagnoses that makes emergency medicine so great, but occasionally so nerve-wracking. Your Just the Facts article, How Do I Rule Out Aortic Dissection?, covers a number of important factors when considering a patient with aortic dissection. So let's jump right in. First of all, we all fear missing aortic dissection, but in reality, how often is it missed? It's a good question, Hans, because it's something that's in the back of our mind whenever we're dealing with someone with chest pain. It started out back in the 1930s that we were missing about 98% of those that presented, so we weren't doing so well. As time has gone on and we have had easier access to imaging, that uh, 98% has come down probably somewhere between 14, 15, upwards to 30%. All right. Now, often the cases that are missed seem to happen, at least from what, I, what I've read in the literature and what I've heard you talk about, because we're not screening for high-risk features of aortic dissection. What are some of these high-risk features that we should keep in mind every time that we start thinking about aortic dissection? The rare high-risk things would be the risk factors, such as connective tissue disease, uh, whether someone has a thoracic or an abdominal aortic aneurysm, whether they have a family history of aortic disease, whether that's a a AAA or whether it's aortic dissection, or whether they have a bicuspid aortic uh, valve. There's things mentioned in the literature like recent aortic manipulation, but that's probably something that's going to come up on history. So it's not something you really need to worry a lot about. Now, we all pride ourselves on our clinical skills. Is there a chance that clinical assessment without imaging can rule out aortic dissection? I believe so. The problem is is that people often quote the high miss rate to say that uh, clinical assessment alone cannot rule it out. And there is absolute truth in that. But you, you have to look at the sheer volume of patients that we see on a daily basis that are presenting with severe pain, that are presenting with sharp or migrating pain. And being the uh, excellent eMERGE physicians that most of the listeners are, you decide that they're low risk for aortic dissection and you don't proceed with that diagnosis any further. The evidence supporting the utility of clinical judgments is, is weak. Probably the the only relatively high-quality study is one out of Italy by Nazarian et al., which was the uh, advised study, which wasn't looking at clinical acumen per se. But within their study, they looked at everybody who was thought to have a clinical suspicion for aortic dissection, and they followed them. There was a large number of that cohort that were discharged without any imaging, just based on clinical exam alone. And within all those people who were discharged without any imaging, the probability that they had an aortic dissection was only 0.7%. So we can definitely reduce our risk, but we just don't know how much. One of our the wonders of emergency medicine, or one of the lab tests that we seem to love and hate in emergency medicine, is the D-dimer. What is the role, if any, of the D-dimer for testing in aortic dissection? The short answer is there isn't evidence to say that if we employ D-dimer 
as a tool in a systematic way in our workup of dissection. There is an evidence to say that this will reduce miss rate and this will not lead to overtesting. However, there is also no evidence to say that using the uh, high-risk signs and symptoms and features that we use on a daily basis to risk stratify for aortic dissection are any better than, than anything else. The volume of evidence for D-dimer, it's flawed, but it seems to say the same thing, that the sensitivity is, is good. It's somewhere between 90 and 100%. So use it carefully, use it in conjunction with your clinical acumen. Don't use it in isolation and be careful, I suppose, is the take home with it. That's all the time that we have today. Please make sure you read the full article once again in CGEM with Dr. Robert Ole. And the title is Just the Facts, How Do I Rule Out Aortic Dissection? All right, I know what some of you are thinking, that D-dimer should not be used in aortic dissection because it's likely to lead to overtesting. And I agree. Based on our extensive review of the literature on the very first Journal Jam podcast, we concluded that D-dimer should not be used in the evaluation of aortic dissection. The thing is, aortic dissection is such a rare disease that using D-dimer, which has an imperfect sensitivity, almost certainly lead to radiating the bejesus out of a heck of a lot of patients who don't need a CT. Also, as Justin eloquently pointed out in his first 10 EM blog on the topic, while the sensitivity and specificity look great, they're probably overestimated due to serious methodological flaws in the studies. All right, last but not least, we've got Swami giving us a few clinical pearls on medications for severe asthma. There are a few presentations in emergency medicine that are more bread and butter than the asthma attack. We see it almost daily. It spans the spectrum of severity, from the patient who just needs a puff of an inhaler to the patient who ends up intubated in the unit. In general, if we work quickly, we can turn most patients around pretty fast. Some treatments are standard and they're well accepted. Inhaled beta agonists, they reverse the bronchospasm, back to back to back in moderate to severe asthmatics. Steroids are almost universally prescribed. If the patient comes into the ED, they probably need a short course of steroids. And most of us are going to use inhaled anticholinergics as well, like ipratropium. But I want to focus on two other medications that we don't always reach for in asthma, but we should think about using them in the sickest subset of patients a little bit more aggressively than we are right now. The first is epinephrine. Now, epi is a tried and true asthma medication. Before the advent of the inhaled beta agonist, Sub-Q and IM epinephrine was the treatment of choice in asthma exacerbations. Inhaled meds replaced the epinephrine doses because it had less side effects associated with it. But epinephrine still plays a role in the sick and crashing asthmatic. When they have no air entry, inhaled beta agonists simply aren't going to work. They're not going to be able to get delivered down to those alveoli where they're needed. Parenteral epinephrine, on the other hand, can be extremely valuable because the patient doesn't have to be moving significant air for it to work. We can start with IM epi in the anaphylaxis dosing, 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams, and this can be life-saving. We know it works fast, and we know that it works even if the patient isn't moving air because we see it work in anaphylaxis when the patient also has bronchoconstriction. Even better is that we can go IV with our epinephrine. Now, I know people get a little skittish about IV epinephrine in alive patients because it's dangerous if we use it in the wrong dose, but 
Let's be honest, any drug used in the wrong dose can be dangerous. IV epinephrine works fast, and it doesn't rely on blood flow to the muscle, which might be compromised in these patients as well. I typically will give 10 to 15 micrograms IV over a minute and then repeat that dose, and I can always start a drip at 5 to 10 mics per minute if the patient responds to that parenteral epinephrine. If the patient doesn't have access and they're not moving air well with that sick, crashing asthmatic, go ahead and give it IM while you're establishing IV access. But if the patient already has IV access, why not go IV with your epi? Just make sure you've got the right dose. If you've got an asthmatic patient who's hypotensive, epinephrine is your go-to drug. Not only is it going to help to reverse the bronchoconstriction, it's going to bring up that blood pressure as well. The caveat here is that hypotension is rarely seen in lone asthma exacerbations, and you should be considering other diagnoses. Sure, the patient might breath stack, especially if they're mechanically ventilated. That might decrease pulmonary venous return and cause hypotension. But again, those are mechanically ventilated patients, not your usual asthma exacerbations. Terbutaline is something that comes up all the time. Why not use terbutaline instead of epinephrine? I think it'd be fine if it's something that you're used to, that you use quite a bit, that your nurses and your other staff use quite a bit. But it's not used very typically in my emergency room, so I'm going to have to call for it from pharmacy, and that delay is not going to be acceptable. Finally, let's talk about magnesium sulfate. Now, there's lots of lit on magnesium saying that it's really not that great in asthma exacerbations. The 3MG trial showed a slight decrease in hospitalization in the moderate to severe asthmatic, but it was a pretty modest improvement. Part of the issue is in how we're giving the magnesium. Typically, we give two grams IV over an hour, and then we call it a day. I think that the problem here is that magnesium levels, the serum levels, fluctuate rapidly. We're probably not getting high enough serum levels for long enough to actually have an impact on the patient. So what about giving it as an infusion? There was a study in 2016 of severe pediatric asthma patients looking at high-dose infusion. It was a small study, and they gave 50 mg per kg over an hour times one, and then followed that with 50 mg per kg per hour for four hours to a max of 8 grams over that four-hour period. They found a 37% absolute increase in patients discharged at 24 hours. That's a number needed to treat of three. Unfortunately, it is a very small study. It's single center, but I think this is something that we can consider in sick patients, and it's probably the best study that we're going to get on this topic. So here's what I do. If they're a crashing, dying asthmatic, in addition to all of the other things I'm doing, especially that epinephrine, I give magnesium about two grams over 20 minutes, and I repeat that times three doses. And then I'm going to start an infusion of two to four grams per hour for the first two to three hours of management. Does it actually help the patient? Hard to say. I've had a small handful of patients where I've reached for this high-dose magnesium, and they turned around. But I was also giving them a number of other medications, including epinephrine. And so it's hard to say whether it was the magnesium or if it was any of the six or seven other interventions the patient was getting. One nice thing, if you're giving the IV epi, the magnesium infusion is nice because it balances out the tacky dysrhythmias that you often get because of the epinephrine. So let's summarize this here. The sick, crashing asthmatic is not your typical run-of-the-mill asthma exacerbation that you see in the emergency department, and they deserve aggressive management. If you don't have an IV, start with IM epinephrine, 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams, just like your anaphylaxis dose. If you've got an IV, give them 10 to 15 micrograms IV of epinephrine over a minute. You can repeat that dose and then start them on a drip of somewhere between 5 and 10 mics per minute. With magnesium, if you're going to use it, push them up to higher doses. 2 grams over 20 minutes, repeat that times 3 times, and then you can start an infusion of 2 to 4 grams per hour for the first 2 to 3 hours of management. All right, now for the quick review. 
AFib-ED rate versus rhythm control. So when it comes to immediate cardioversion versus rate control and follow-up within 36 hours for stable AFib patients, the outcomes are about the same as per the latest New England Journal of Medicine study. However, there are practical considerations that might point you one way or another. There's patient preference, whether or not you can get the patient followed up within 36 hours, if the patient is high risk for sedation, your ED resources, how busy your ED is at the time that the patient presents the ED with their AFib. Do remember that about 70% of patients will convert spontaneously within 36 hours, and we should probably avoid counseling patients to come back to the ED every single time they feel the slightest palpitation. Next up is snake bites. So... North American snakes are crotalids, which are necrotoxic, not neurotoxic, so you have time with these patients. The most important aspect of crotalid snake bite envenomation first aid is to remove constricting items of the limb and immobilizing the limb while keeping it elevated. This is very different to the first aid for a neurotoxic snake from Australia or Asia. For the neurotoxic snakes, first aid is a pressure immobilization bandage that limits lymphatic spread of the deadly toxin. Then when the crotalid snake bitten patient gets to the ED, send off labs including INR, CK, and lights. Monitor the extent of both the swelling and pain Q1H up to 24 hours. And all these patients with so-called major envenomations should have a consultation with your local poison control center. And most of them will usually get crotaline fab four to six vials initially or double that for immediate life-threatening envenomations. All right, next is ovarian torsion myths. There are three big myths when it comes to the clinical assessment and diagnosis of ovarian torsion. First is that ovarian torsion only occurs in women of reproductive age. Not true. Ovarian torsion affects women of all ages, children, even before the onset of menses, postmenopausal patients, and pregnant patients. The second myth of ovarian torsion is that mild intermittent pain over a few days can't be torsion. Wrong again. Torsion can be intermittent, the pain can be mild or even non-existent, and can gradually come on over a few days. The classic abrupt onset of severe unrelenting acute pain is not always present. And the third ovarian torsion myth is that a patient with a minimally tender belly and no mass palpated on pelvic exam can't have torsion. Wrong again. The sensitivity of abdominal and pelvic exam for torsion is only about 25%, whether done by an ED doc or an obstetrician. So be sure to keep torsion on your differential for female patients of any age who present with unexplained lower abdominal pain and don't rely solely on the story and clinical exam to rule it out. Next was the ED management of crystal meth use disorder. So crystal meth is a big problem and on the rise in North America. Many of these patients require chemical sedation with midazolam and haldol and sometimes ketamine. Once these patients have settled down from their agitation, if they're willing, try some motivational interviewing and offer them a referral to addictions clinic and or cognitive behavioral therapy. If they have chronic hallucinations, consider an oral olanzapine prescription. And if they want to quit, then bupropion or modafinil may help, although the evidence is weak. 
Next is aortic dissection. Now, we covered aortic dissection in depth in episode 92 with Dave Carr from the EM Cases course, but here we highlighted a couple new facts. One, that the recent advised study reported a miss rate of actually only 0.7% based on clinical features alone. So we are getting better at diagnosing this relatively rare disease. When patients have none of the high risk factors, which we'll list in the show notes, the likelihood that they have aortic dissection is extremely unlikely. And sorry, folks, when it comes to D-dimer, in the absence of a proven diagnostic algorithm, it's really difficult to know whether D-dimer will improve the miss rate or just increase the number of imaging studies performed. My guess is the latter. And finally, there's the severe crashing asthmatic patient. Don't forget about epinephrine and magnesium sulfate for the severe asthmatic. Ideally, you want to give epi IV 10 to 15 micrograms over one minute and repeat once, followed by an infusion of 5 to 10 micrograms per minute if there's no response to the boluses. Anaphylactic dose IM epinephrine is also acceptable. And if you give MAG, consider giving the high doses suggested by Swami and supported by a small study, 2 grams IV over 20 minutes repeated three times to a total of 8 grams, followed by an infusion of 2 to 4 grams per hour for 2 to 3 hours. All right, well, that's it for the review. Just want to let you know that the quiz for the status epilepticus and management of resolved seizures episodes are up on the respective show notes pages and on the quiz vault. That'll help you solidify the knowledge from those episodes. And registration for EMU, that's the Emergency Medicine Update Conference, is open. It's the best big EM conference in Canada, if not the world, in my opinion. All right, we're done. 